And as you read these accounts or you listen to these stories, what becomes even more amazing about them, what becomes even more gripping about them is how they approached their death how they seemed sort of like larger-than-life figures. They were fearless. It seemed like a scene out of Braveheart or Gladiator. The empire would want to take their lives, and yet they would go to their deaths with no fear. They're composed and courageous. For example, one of the early martyrs of the Christian church was a man named Polycarp. And tradition has it that Polycarp was sort of in a discipleship group, as we'd call it, with the Apostle John. He was being discipled by John himself. And Polycarp was a Christian for most of his life, and when he was 86 years old, he was brought in front of the empire to be burned at the stake for his faith. And it says that when Polycarp was about to die, he, tradition has it, said to them, you think that I'm afraid of these fires. These fires will last for just a moment, but what you should be terrified is the fires of judgment that will last forever. And then they were about to hammer him to the stake, and he said to the guards, you don't need to nail me to the stake. He said, my God who will endure me through these fires will keep me here far more secure than those nails will. And that's how this man went to die. And that's just one story out of many stories of Christian heroes and martyrs of the faith who faced that last hour with great courage as they were thrown into the Colosseum or tortured for their faith, composed and calm and full of courage. And, and, and listen, if those stories can seem like they're from a long time ago in a land far away, I would have you know just this last week, I met with a, an older man in his 80s on street road at the Starbucks. He runs this thing called Perspectives on Global Missions, this course that I want to see if we can get our church connected to it. So I met him at Starbucks, and he told me some 20 years ago he was a missionary in the Philippines. Here's this 80-year-old man, and he tells me the story of how he got abducted for 26 days. I'm sitting across, and he tells me the story of how he was in the Philippines living in his hut when the door flung open. Six men with M16s came in, took him in the middle of the night, put him on a boat, sailed him away to a different island he did not know, threw him into a hut overnight. I asked him, what, what did you feel? What did you say on that evening? He said to me, as he was thrown into that hut, he prayed to the Lord, and he said, God, I've been asking to spend more time with you. I didn't know you'd answer this way, right? And I couldn't imagine to have a sense of humor about you at that moment. For 26 days, he said, the guards would come every day describing to him in detail how they would butcher him, how they would end him, how they would put him to death. And I asked him, I said, what was your soul like in that whole thing? And he began to recount to me how God had strengthened him with scripture. So much so, and this was not a boastful, pride, prideful man. He's in his 80s and he's telling me how God strengthened him. So much so that the guards would ask him, why are you not afraid? Why do you not seem lonely? And in that moment, he began to tell them about his faith in God and about his faith in Jesus. And how they on the outside of his cage could have the same reality he was experiencing on the inside. I mean, just a man of flesh and blood, a normal, ordinary guy that I met on street road. It's knowing that there are stories like that that make this scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane so surprising. To, to see that Jesus comes to his last hour and you wouldn't have described him as calm or composed or full of courage. 
You wouldn't have described them that way at all. In fact, to be honest, there were times when Christians didn't just find this account of Jesus that we just heard from Mark 14. They, they wouldn't have called it surprising. They would have described it as embarrassing. It was almost embarrassed by how Jesus acted the night before he was going to die. I mean, this, this isn't an 80-year-old man at Starbucks. This is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. And yet when he comes to his last hour, when his hour comes before him, the words you would describe would not be calm. It would not be composed or fearless or heroic or brave. In fact, if you were to describe Jesus as you just heard him in Mark 14, you would have used words like, Jesus seems rattled. He seems shook and shocked. He seems overwhelmed. In fact, the words that Mark used that you heard, Mark describes him as greatly distressed. Mark says he was troubled. A troubled man was in the garden that night. He was sorrowful even unto death, Mark says. This, by the way, is why Christians would tell you over and over again, when you read the gospel accounts, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're reading history, not legend. They would tell you that because of scenes like this, because they would tell you, look, if you were making up a religion, if you were going to come up with this religion and invent this God that was supposed to draw allegiance from the people away from all the other gods, draw allegiance at that time away from the invincible Roman Caesar, the one with infinite power, you certainly wouldn't have come up with a God who was sprawled out on a garden floor, begging, pleading for his life. You wouldn't have created a God who was making mud with his tears into the dirt. You wouldn't have come up with this. But this is the history of Jesus that Mark has for us. And Mark says, you and I need to come with Jesus into the garden. And when we come to him at Gethsemane, we see Jesus like we've never seen before. So that's what we have for us this morning. This morning, we enter Gethsemane and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to see Jesus and seeing him rightly to feel and know what we ought to know. So pray with me for a moment. Let's ask the Spirit for that help, and then we'll continue. Father, the words are right here in front of us. We can hear the story with our ears. But we ask now for the help of the Holy Spirit, lest we be blind to seeing Jesus in Gethsemane, lest we be numb to feeling what we ought to feel, lest we be dull to knowing what we ought to know. We pray that you would give us vision to see him, and seeing him, we would feel afresh and anew his incredible love for us today. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God, help us to see this passage more than a preacher could communicate it. We're in Mark 14. It starts in verse 32. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So here's the scene. They have left the upper room where we were at last week. 
where Jesus had fulfilled all the shadows that the Passover was pointing to. He had instituted his new meal, the Lord's Supper. He had given them bread and said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. He had given them a cup. This is my blood. It's poured out for the new covenant for many. Do this from now on in remembrance of me. And they sing a hymn and they leave that upper room. And they go to this garden, Gethsemane. John's account would say that Jesus had gone here many times. In fact, that's how Judas knew where to bring the guards when he was going to betray them. This was in any way a familiar place. It should have felt in every way a familiar night, except that it wasn't. Because Jesus on this night appears in a way they have never seen him before. He takes his disciples to the garden. He leaves them there and he says, you sit here and watch while I go there and pray. And then he takes the three. Do you notice that? He takes Peter, James, and John a bit further. He he takes the trio, the inner circle, if you will. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has taken these three men off into to experience, encounter a moment that no one else had access to. If you remember back in chapter 9, Jesus had taken them up on the mountain. And there we saw a scene we call the transfiguration. There, these three men and no one else got to see Jesus in all his divinity. It's almost like there, the sentence would have been, they saw God in the flesh. And the word God would have been highlighted and bolded and put in caps locks and underlined. What they saw then was God in the flesh. Well, now these three men are again taken with Jesus now into the valley. And now it's as if Jesus is going to give them an up-close look into his humanity. It's as if the sentence now is going to be, they're going to see God in the flesh. And in the flesh is highlighted in caps locks and underlined. They are going to see the God-man in the garden. And it's fitting also that these three should be the one, because at various points, these three had pledged their love and loyalty to Jesus. They had declared with great confidence that they would suffer anything with and for Jesus. In chapter 10, James and John went to Jesus, saying, we're ready to drink a cup with you, suffer with you, just make sure we get a seat at your right hand and your left hand. In fact, in the passage right before this one, we'll look at this next week, Peter has just with great bravery said, Lord, even if everyone should fall away, I won't. I will suffer with you. I will die with you. I will die for you. We will not get out of this passage before not only will it be that these three cannot suffer with him, cannot die for him, these three will not be able to keep their eyes open long enough to stay awake with him. He says to them, remain here and watch with me. So taking these three off in the company of these three friends, Mark tells us that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Began to be, in the sense there is almost sort of suddenly, almost as if something happens that dramatically shifts the scene, dramatically changes the mood. Suddenly he began to be. As if this wasn't a moment ago. He had just left the upper room. They were singing hymns together. But something happens in the garden that rattles him. It's almost as if he sees something, becomes aware of something that suddenly shifts the mood here. He began to be, and he began to be what? He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. The commentators say the the sense there is the idea of almost shocked. The almost the sense of he's overwhelmed. The sense there that he's gripped with terror, that something in the garden there horrifies Jesus. So much so that verse 34, he said to them, 
My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. As if everything around Jesus in that garden gets so dark, and the weight of it and the hour of it and the agony of it presses down on his heart so hard that he says to them, I feel like my heart is going to explode, like it's going to burst, like I'm not going to make it to the morning. My sorrow is so great that I feel as if I'm going to die. Now listen, you can be sure the disciples had never seen Jesus like that before. And, and friends, we, we've been trekking through Mark for a while now. We have never seen Jesus like this. In fact, the way we've seen Jesus throughout Mark is the exact opposite of all of this. It's the words we used in the beginning, composed and calm and full of courage. We have seen Jesus fearless and unfazed and heroic and brave no matter what's come at him. He's always been at the front and not the back. He's always led the way and led the charge in every scene. We've seen so much in Mark. We've seen Jesus encounter opposition of every kind. Can you imagine all the powers that be had nothing but attack after attack, blasphemy and ridicule and traps set for Jesus, and he's never phased. He just responds to one and then to another and then to another. His family in Mark, do you remember? They came because they were convinced he had been out of his mind. They were ready to grab Jesus, lock him in the basement, and throw away the key. And Jesus... He's not devastated. He's not destroyed. He simply says, let me tell you who my family is. It's those who do the will of God. Do you remember the scene where Jesus and his disciples go while it's still dark, early in the morning? They go to the other side, to the region of the Decapolis. And basically, as soon as they dock, there's a graveyard there and a naked man full of demons, an army of demons, a legion of demons, a naked, strong man comes screaming at them in the middle of the night from a graveyard, and Jesus doesn't flinch. It's like he went like this, and, and he didn't even blink. Fearless. Or do you remember back in chapter 4? That was so long ago. Do you remember when they were on the boat in the storm? A hurricane hit basically that night. And Jesus was unfazed. In fact, do you remember where he was in the boat? Asleep. Asleep. A hurricane had hit and he was asleep. Sort of like I just pictured our kids in their car seats. And we're just amazed at what they can sleep through. That we'll sing and do all this stuff and they'll sleep through the whole service. Jesus was in the hurricane and he slept through it. And, and do you remember that the disciples, who, by the way, were trained fishermen, who were sailors, who had been through skulls and storms and seen the angry waves, they, in that moment, were scared to death. They shake Jesus awake, and then Jesus essentially does what? He tells the winds to be what he is. Calm, be still, peace. This is Jesus, unfazed. Uh, unflappable, heroic, in command, in charge, all the time, except here. In the garden, in the garden, he is so distressed, it's as if he is drowning in grief. It's as if he's shaking like a leaf. It's as if the waves and billows of sorrow are falling on him and he's choking in his sorrow. My heart is so sorrowful, I feel like I'm going to die. Deeply distressed and troubled is the scene. You hear it in his prayer, verse 35. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, 
the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He leaves the three and he goes a bit further. He pleads with them, would you stay with me? I mean, the son of God in the flesh needing their support. And he goes off a bit further to meet now with his father to pray. And it's almost as if his body now catches up with what's happening in his soul. He cannot stand upright. He's not going to stand and lift his arms in prayer. He falls to his knees. You see your Jesus on the garden there, on the garden floor. You wonder, is his face buried in his hands? Or is his face hit the ground? Wherever it is, he begins to pray and he prays that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. If it were possible, that this hour might pass from him. Now listen, this hour that Jesus is speaking of, is an hour that was determined a lot of hours ago. This hour that Jesus was speaking of was an hour that was in view from eternity past. I mean, that that kind of thing doesn't even make sense to us, so at least in our understanding of time. From the moment that Adam, the first man, was in the garden, and from the moment he took that fruit, and from the moment he looked to the heavens and he essentially shouted, not your will, but mine be done. From that moment, this hour and this garden was in view. Because of what that man said in that garden, this man would stand in this garden. From that far back. It's as if almost from the moment that Adam ate that fruit, you you could almost picture Jesus standing up from his throne. That his journey to this hour began as far back as that. This is the hour for which he had come. This is the hour to which all human history was building. Every page in your Bible was getting you ready for this hour. And nobody knew that better than Jesus. And Jesus was asking, who had come for this hour, if it's possible, could you let this hour pass for me? You take that in, friends. As if Jesus is asking, if there be any other way right now. You you imagine, it's almost like, You remember in the Old Testament, there's this story of a man named Abraham, this giant of the faith. God puts him to a test, and this dad, this father, this Abba, has to put his son onto an altar, and he's going to raise the dagger and bring it down. And at the very last minute, at the last hour, at the 11th hour, if you will, a voice comes from the heavens and says, don't do that, because there's another way. There's a lamb, a ram in the thicket, in the bushes. There's an alternative, and so this son is spared. And this Jesus, in this moment, cries out, Abba, all things are possible for you. You could do anything. So is there something in the thicket that I don't know of? Is there something waiting in the bushes that could rescue me from this hour? He's pleading with his father, would you deliver me? Would you save me from this hour? Would you let this pass from me? Now, hear me. Why does the unshakable Jesus seem so shaken? So much so that he's begging God here to not have to go to the cross. And Samaro, don't miss that that's what Jesus is asking here. Would you let that sit with all the mystery that that entails? Would you let it sit on you that he's in the garden and something has hit him so that he is asking Can I not go to the cross? Can that not happen? I mean, you think of this. 
This is just moments after he has instituted the Lord's Supper. He has just broken bread and poured out a cup, and he said, from now on, you'll eat this and drink this, remembering forever my death for you. He's done that. And yet he's come into the garden saying, could you take this away? Could you deliver me? And listen, this is not drama. This isn't an empty show where there are scripted lines and they're reading. This is the prayer he in the garden is praying. I I know I've given them that meal, but I'm asking you right now, Father, is there any way that this cup could be removed from me? This hour could pass from me. So you ask, why? Why now? Why here? And it couldn't have just been the prospect that death would be painful. It couldn't have just been, you know, the Romans torture their people. Listen, it couldn't have been because an 86-year-old man on street road had greater poise. There's lots of people who have faced their death more heroically than that. The crucifixion was awful, and yet there's Jewish accounts of men who went to the cross defying the Romans and screaming out God's name. It couldn't have just been that, and that hour hadn't yet come. And it couldn't have even been that Jesus just didn't know and suddenly came to know. No, Jesus knew better than anyone. Jesus had predicted this three times. In chapter 8 and 9 and 10, we heard it in Mark. In fact, so much so that his disciples say, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do that. Don't let that happen to you. And he is the one who leads the way. Always. It can't be that Jesus is reeling from new information. And yet, could it be that in this garden... He is beginning to taste what tomorrow holds for him. He is beginning to not just know, but in a way that he's never known before, taste what it will mean for him to receive God's punishment. He says it in his prayer. What does he say? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup from me. That in the garden, he stares at a cup And a cup that has him then staggering. What's the cup? Jesus knew his Bible, so he would have known that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in the first half of your Bibles, God often mentioned this cup. It was written in the scriptures. And the cup was this metaphor of God's wrath. When the prophet spoke of it, when the psalmist spoke of it, they would speak of this cup as if this this cup of God's wrath, as if God had this thing where he would, all the evil, And all the injustice and all the wicked things and all his hatred and all his anger and all his fury for all the wrong that has ever been done. All the things that were not right, all the things that were hurtful, all the things that are so messed up about our world. And all of God's hatred for it, like he poured it all into this one goblet. And this one goblet of fire and sulfur, this toxic poison, this is what God has, a cup reserved for the wicked that he will finally give to them at the end. This is for you. You drink this. And Isaiah will say, this is the cup of God's wrath, and we would tear open our chest if we drank it. It would destroy us. The psalmist will say, the wicked will take this and drink it down to its dregs. They'll drink it, be forced to guzzle it down to its last drop. And it's as if in the garden, Jesus stares into that cup, into the cup of God's wrath, and the prospect that he would drink that down is enough for him to say, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. It's as if Jesus faces in this garden more than he has ever done before, closer than he's ever seen it, the real reality that he is about to bear our sins. 
and be the sin-bearing substitute, that all those words are about to come true, he will be pierced for our transgressions, and he will be crushed for our iniquities. It will be through his stripes and wounds that we're healed, and all of that reality weighs on him. In a way that I want you to hear, Seven Road, I have no idea how to explain or understand, and I imagine you don't either. What does it mean for the one who is the only one who is without sin, the one who is sinless and without stain, without spot, without blemish, who abhors sin, who hates sin, what would it be to stare into the cup and recognize the prospect that he who knew no sin was about to become sin for us? That all the sin of God's people was about to come unto him. And as such, all that God would have for him is a cup of his anger and fury and wrath. And that Jesus stares into the reality that now the Father is going to treat him like the wicked. That he will be cut off and cast out like the son that's kicked out of the home. I read this one commentator named William Lane. He says it like this. He has this great sentence. He says, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his death, but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. It was the one time the obedient son had knelt to pray and heaven said no to him. And the father had no answer for him. And the father wasn't going to come to rescue him or deliver him or save him or spare him. No one was going to shout no. The knife of God's justice was going to come down. He would bear all of this. And no one was coming for him. I want you to hear in that garden, I think that's part of what he saw. To be betrayed by Judas would hurt. And to be denied by Peter would sting. To be abandoned by them all. To be accused by the chief priests. To be jeered by the crowds. To be mocked by the soldiers. To be condemned by Pilate. To be crucified and killed would kill. But not, I imagine, make him stagger like the prospect that the Father would forsake him. The Father would abandon him. I'd imagine we don't know the depth of that relationship to know what that meant. You know, there's a new movie called The Lion Out or Lion Out, and I've heard nothing but good about it. It's supposedly the story of this boy in India who gets lost at a train station, and then the rest of the movie is his search to find his home. My wife refuses to watch the movie because it's too close to home. When she was six years old, In Mumbai, if you've ever seen a scene or a picture of a train station in Mumbai, I mean, it's a sea of humanity. She was at the train station and somehow got let go. So much so, she won't watch the movie. That moment so scarred her, got separated from her family. And imagine a six-year-old seeing a sea of humanity and looking for one familiar face. Now, my wife is here because, as it happened, she was found. Imagine this son who on the next day would be hanging on a cross. And all the world had abandoned him. And imagine him peering out for the one familiar face he would know. The face he had gazed into and had gazed back at him for all eternity. And then from there to be left even alone then. And have no dad coming for him. No one was coming to rescue him. No one was coming to deliver him. He was in this garden staring at the prospect, you're going to let go of my hand. And no one's coming for me. And no one's going to deliver me. 
And no one's going to rescue me. And I want you to hear, the agony of that was so great that Luke's account says that when he thought of that and began to pray, sweat drops of blood began to flow. That it was so straining on him. You know that physicians tell us that's a real thing. That's not made up. That you come under such strain, your capillaries burst. I I heard this preacher named J.D. Greer. He told this awful story. He told the story of this campus pastor, this man who was a pastor, and he had three sons, and and all three sons are alive and they're well. But he told the story of this dad and his mom who had taken their three boys to the pool. He told the story of how they had finished up swimming, and the mom takes the boys back to the van, and then to their horror, they look, and one of the boys isn't there. And they go back to the pool, and he says he sees what no parent should see. There's his three-year-old at the bottom of the pool. They jump in and they rescue him and they resuscitate him. They bring him to the hospital. And Greer says that this pastor went to the hospital room and he saw his boy now asleep. And he said he noticed little blotches of purple on his face. And the doctor, he asked what that was. And and the doctor began to explain to him that this boy, apparently before he had gone unconscious underneath, was in such strain calling for his parents that the capillaries on his face burst. It's a horrible thing. Do you see the son in the garden screaming out to get his father's attention? That this son will lie on that cross and be the one who this night called him Abba, but tomorrow will have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus is staring into in this night. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup for me. If there's be any other way, and by the way, I rightly heard someone say, this is why it's such an insult to say there are many ways to get to God. It's such an insult because why would Jesus have to go through this? Would not the father have said to him, actually, son, there are many ways. There are lots, you could just be a really good guy and come, so we don't have to go through all this. There's lots of different paths. If there be any other way but this. But the father says to him that evening, for your sake and mine, there was no other. And so all Jesus heard in prayer was heaven's no. A no to his prayer. Let me end by saying this. Why do you and I need to see Jesus in the garden? Why do I need to see him that way? I need to see him that way. You need to see him that way. So that seeing what he went through, you might know, you might know he did that for you. Mark is not merely trying to get our pity for Jesus roused. Mark is reminding us this is what the obedient son of God did in the garden. And he did so for you. And if you see him in the garden, I imagine you can see afresh and anew how much, in fact, he loves you, how deeply he loves you. Jonathan Edwards, the preacher from a long time ago, he he asked the question of why is it that God let Jesus see the cup before he went to the cross? He almost imagined to himself, you'd almost imagine it was a dangerous thing to do that. Why didn't God wait until Jesus was on the cross to fully show him this? And Jonathan Edwards says this. He says it was so that we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience so that his love for us would be put on display even more. Well, this other Christian named Donna McLeod, he says it this way. He says, the wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, 
but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified, he lovingly took damnation for us. Friends, I think we need to see the garden because I don't know about you, but for me, maybe you have seen the love of God for you at the cross, but maybe you didn't notice that it began before. It began here even on this night in the garden because this is the night that Jesus decided he was going to go through with it. I mean, if this prayer is a real prayer and these aren't scripted lines and this isn't a fake drama, then this night was the real possibility that Jesus was struggling with, should I go through with this or not? This night was the real struggle, the real fight to submit to God's will, to come out of this time of prayer, pleading what he wants to and yet saying, yet not what I will, but yours be done. This is the night where Jesus resolved that he would obey the Father and would do what was needed to rescue us. This night is the night of no return. That if Jesus were going to cross this night, that he would emerge from this garden different than when he went into the garden. This was the night where Jesus really contemplated whether he would be the suffering servant, whether he would be crucified or not. And this is the night from which he came out saying, yet not what I will but what you will be done. It's almost as if, as I thought about this, at least for me yesterday, it's almost as if at this night, Jesus is in the garden wrestling, holding on to God's hand, asking, is there any way that I can get them without you letting go of me? And if you put yourself in that, the wonder of the thought, as if Jesus on that night were saying, is there any way I could get a J without you letting go of me? And the answer to that would have been no. And then he would have said, then you let me go. I mean, that's what he decided on that night. The love of God didn't start on those six hours on that Friday. It was here in this garden that he had committed to doing whatever was coming for our sake. This is the night where he said, I will drink that cup. Friends, the the Christian message is that God's wrath It's been likened to sort of like a dam. Imagine a dam of water, uh, hundreds of feet in in the air, and you're standing from it, and this mountain of water in front of you, and imagine that you're a few miles away, and the dam begins to break. And imagine now this thing cracks, and now this torrent of water is rushing at you. This is the wrath of God stored coming at you. Now there's nowhere to run, and there's nowhere to hide, and there's nowhere to escape to. You are moments away being swept away. An old preacher said, imagine at that moment that the ground in front of you splits, and all that wall of water comes and flows right in front of you so that not a drop touches you. You remain perfectly dry. Well, the Christian message is that at the bottom of that split is Jesus Christ, drowning in God's wrath, reserved for us, but poured out on him so that we might be spared and not a touch of his fury might come to us. This is the love of God for us. If you're here and you're a Christian, do you see afresh and anew what Christ went through in Gethsemane? And even if you're in your darkest hours, I would want you to hear this. The truth is, Jesus can come to you in your sorrow and say, I can relate. He may not know the specifics of every circumstance every human being goes to, but he knows what it's to be sorrowful. He can come to you and no matter what you're going through, whatever your garden moment might be, and say, I know. But we, 
we will never be able to say to him, I know. He can relate with our suffering. We can't relate with his. Because when you go through whatever you're going through, no matter how dark it is, I want you to know, by faith, you can say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You can talk about a table and a cup that is overflowing in goodness and mercy. You can pray that prayer because he couldn't. He went through the valley of the shadow of death. And he would have said from the cross, and God wasn't with him. God had left him, abandoned him for our sake. And the cup that he drank was very different than the cup you and I drink. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, then the invitation of this passage would be, here's God's love for you. Tonight, today, could be the day where you respond to what he did that night. And you say, Jesus, you took the cup I deserved in my place for my sins, bore the wrath of God. And, and I believe that and confess that and live my life for that. This is the love of God for us. Jesus emerges from this garden and he says to his disciples, wake up. It's enough time to sleeping. And then he says, because the hour has come. The hour he begged God wouldn't come had come. Except Jesus emerges from that garden very different than he went in. He assumes his spot again. He says, rise, let's be going. My betrayer is at hand. And from that moment on, he does not look back. Let's pray together.